0: Welcome to Marvel
1: Us Disney. Welcome to Marvel Us Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings of one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. As for who the us in this show's title is, I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and since we've got an awful lot of new news to cover this week, let me quickly bring in our resident Marvel expert, one Aaron Adams.
0: Hello, glad to be back. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are just literally a few days out now from the worldwide theatrical release of Marvel Infinity Wars, and Marvel has been doing everything it can to whip up excitement about this film. Have you seen the stuff they've been doing lately about sending the cast around the world, Aaron? No, actually, I've been hiding in the woods under a
0: wet blanket, so I can receive zero information about adventures until it comes out so i'm just going to take off my headphones for like the next five minutes and let you cover this
1: because i don't want to know anything about it got it it, though (laughs) to be fair they've been pretty cool about keeping minimal amount of information i mean for example right they've been sending members of the cast out april 4th of this month chris pratt was down in brazil he served as the MC at a fan event and what they did is they showed like 20 minutes of the movie, the very next day, Mark Ruffalo does the same thing in Mexico City. A week later, in Seoul, Korea, we've got Tom Hiddleston, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Tom Holland doing the same sort of thing. And then on the 9th, they were in London. Hiddleston, Cumberbatch, and Holland, along with Paul Bettany, Elizabeth Olsen, and Letitia Wright from uh, Black Panther. So what were they shown? What's in this 20 minutes? Sirian Harwood from the TheDailySuperhero.com was at the fan event in London, and this is how he described the footage. He said, The 20-minute clip of Avengers Infinity Wars last night was insane. Getting to see interactions between characters that we'd never seen meet before. There has never been anything like this on this scale. We also got to see the new villains in action, and they did not disappoint. Even with the brief action, it was cool to see that they are a credible threat to the Avengers team. So basically, it's sort of setting up the world and then they stop them. Ugh! You could handle that, right? I mean, you've only no, seen... No, 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 I can't. You can. not Okay, for Christmas,
0: yep. my wife and I exchange presents about two weeks before Christmas happens. We are too excited to wait. So if you give me like 20 minutes of Avengers, I could physically harm someone in an attempt to try and find out if the rest of the reel is back in the booth somewhere so I can see the rest of it. Yeah, that would drive me nuts. I just, I got to wait until it comes out and then
1: enjoy it all at once. How many years has it been? 10 years now? Uh, Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's the other part of this big promotion is celebrating the 10th anniversary of of Marvel Studios. So, yeah. uh, that said, though, television has to be you right now because it seems like every two minutes there's an Avengers Infinity Wars ad on television. Well, we don't watch live TV. We're cable cutters, so ah, okay. that helps. All right. For me, what I find fascinating about the new set of ads is that they are so obviously using the success of Black Panther to sort of raise awareness of Infinity Wars and or make people excited. In fact, mm-hmm. the new ad actually ends off with the scene between O'Keya, the head of the Dorj's Malija, who's telling T'Challa... When you said we were going to open a Wakanda to the rest of the world, this is not what I imagined. And the Black Panther's response is, well, what did you imagine? And she then quips, well, the Olympics or maybe even a Starbucks. (laughs) I mean, I guess for me, the thing is that the whole point is that as far as Disney and Marvel is concerned, given that Black Panther is such a phenomenon, they are doing everything in their power to sort of promote the concept that there is some real connective tissue between sure. these two films. And if you yeah. enjoyed the last Marvel Cinematic Movie, you should definitely see the new film of the series, which opens on April 27th. And swinging back to Black Panther, we are, as we record today, that film is completing its 60th day in domestic release. And its box office take in North America is an astounding $637 million. To put that in perspective, there were only two other films in the history of Hollywood that have ever sold more tickets domestically. One of them is Avatar, mm-hmm. which sold 749 million mm-hmm. during its domestic run in 2009. And the other one was Star Wars Episode VII, The Force Awakens, which sold 936 million worth of tickets during its North American run back in December 2015. And speaking of Star Wars. Current box office projections suggest that Avengers Infinity Wars is already tracking well ahead of how Star Wars The Last Jedi did six months ago when it opened in theaters December 2017. And there are even some industry insiders therein who are already suggesting that the opening weekend take for Infinity Wars will possibly surpass that of Force Awakens. Are you surprised by that at all? I think we've talked a little bit about this, about my concern as a guy who used to manage a theater back in the stone age, Mm -hmm. is that this movie is two and a half hours long. Whereas Black Panther was two hours and 15 minutes long, and Force Awakens was two hours and 20 minutes long, and I know it's only 10 minutes difference but that's just enough time if you you do multiple shows over a day that you can't get in that extra show you can only get mm-hmm. in like say four screenings as opposed to five screenings and right and they talk about putting this out in theaters it, over 4100 screens nationwide
0: part of that because we have so many multiplexes available to us the amc around the corner will probably be showing on five or six different screens So they can stagger and keep people in and out. But I think the detriment is other smaller films aren't going to be able to find a home during this time for a long time.
1: That's probably true. Before we step away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe entirely here. I guess we really need to talk about, one of the things that people really enjoy about these movies is the Stanley cameo. And given that Stan was in the hospital earlier this year with pneumonia, I think this was back in January, there were some concerns about, does this mean Stan's not going to appear in these upcoming films? Well, I was talking with somebody at Marvel, and basically what they said is, they actually shot Stan's cameos for, I want to say four? of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies last summer. They shot all in one sort of batch. They did the Black Panther cameo, the Thor Ragnarok cameo, even the cameos for both of the Infinity Wars. Because Again, I know one's called Infinity Wars and the next Avenger movie, the one that coming out in 2019, has some other different title, but supposedly that's in the bag. They even supposedly got Ant-Man and the Wasp cameo done, which is great, but at the same time, there's been a lot of stuff out there lately about Stan. The past six months, you know, or past nine months, actually, haven't really have been kind of a trial for the guy. I mean, between he lost his wife, Joan, of 69 years to a stroke back in July. Earlier this year, there were those sexual harassment accusations from the young nurses that take care of Stan overnight in his Hollywood Hills home, and... Lee, who's always been something of a publicity hound, has spent some time in the spotlight lately that maybe he didn't enjoy. And to add to the guy's woes, just over the, like, the past week or so, it, it, have you seen these stories in the trades about how someone supposedly taking money out of his bank accounts without Stan knowing?
0: Yeah, there's been all kinds of crazy stuff about Uncle
1: Stan in the in the news lately. What makes me crazy is like literally April 13th, New York Times has this giant profile of Stan that, you know, they send somebody to his home and he's out on the back deck talking with the reporter and saying things like, I'm the luckiest guy in the world and no one has more freedom and my daughter is a great help to me and life is pretty good. But exact same day that the New York Times publishes this story. Stan's attorney goes to Los Angeles Superior Court and files a complaint alleging that an associate of his daughter has taken control of Stan's financial and professional affairs. And somewhere along the line, $4.6 million disappeared out of Stan's personal bank account. And this is the problem. There are at least two different narratives out there competing right now. So it's really hard to figure out what's going on with Stanley at this precise moment. And Aaron and I will keep an eye on what's going on here. It's admittedly a sad story and and once the dust settles and once the folks out in LA determine who's actually taking advantage of who we'll be back with more details was he over his pneumonia bout health-wise is he okay Uh, i mean i know
0: he's 95 so you know but pneumonia is a real pain when you're older and i just wondered if if he had gotten over that and he's only just dealing with people pilfering from his account Versus being sick and being pilfered from.
1: Uh, at the same time, there were stories about he's dealing with macular degeneration or the oh. couple of. I mean, I've heard stories lately about how a couple of the autograph shows he's into lately, he has to be reminded how to spell Stan. Oh. He's a 95 year old guy. Yeah. He's been on the ball for so long that I guess the thing to say here is look, as far as I'm concerned, there is a special circle in hell for those who take advantage of the elderly and. Even though Stan has really only been a figurehead at, at Marvel Entertainment for the past few decades, and Aaron, you and I both know that he's made some questionable business decisions over the times that he was oh, in yeah. charge of the, the House of Ideas.
0: Yeah, he was selling like the rights to Fantastic Four for like a hundred thousand dollars over a handshake and stuff like that. So, looking back, hindsight being twenty twenty, and all, you say, "Wow, that was." pretty stupid
1: yeah but even so I mean he he's g-
0: still a legend you still stand the man yeah
1: excelsior yeah and he deserves to be treated with some dignity so yeah absolutely I, I'm just hoping this gets sorted out shortly get things are made right in, in Stan's world so yeah to quote what he used to say at the end of his soapbox column is enough said there you go moving on to Marvel television the difference between Aaron and myself is Nancy and I still watch terrestrial television. I mean, mind you, the television <laughs> doesn't have a knob, but we've been seeing ads lately for Freeform's Cloak & Dagger series, which is supposed to bow on June 7th with a two-hour-long premiere. It's been kind of interesting. There's been a lot of talk about Cloak & Dagger lately, but in a weird sort of side channel. Do you know Kate Beaton, the woman comic writer who does Hark of Vagrant? No, I'm not familiar with her, no. It's a really funny strip that really builds on a lot of what's going on in pop culture, literature, that sort of thing. And Kate, Mm -hmm. back in April of 2016, did this really funny series of strips about Cloak and Dagger, where, and a lot of the humor of the, the strip had to key off the fact that the Tandy character, the Dagger portion of the team... Well, she's played by a 16-year-old girl, but her outfit has this sort of giant dagger shape cut out on the front, which Mm -hmm. leaves very little to the imagination. So they've got 10 episodes of Cloak and Dagger, the Freeform show, shot now. And the Mm -hmm. ads so far have shown the Cloak character, the gentleman who's playing the role, literally in the Cloak, but they have yet to show the whole dagger outfit. and. The actress who's playing Tandy Bowen is twenty-year-old Olivia Holt, so it's perfectly okay if she wears a revealing outfit. But here's the thing: you know, she's playing a sixteen-year-old girl character,
0: so it's technically not okay if yeah. she wears a revealing yeah. outfit.
1: <laughs> I don't know; it's it's one of these things where it's like you're kind of hoping that, given what's going on in our Me Too tinged age, especially when you take into consideration that Freeform is literally this network that's supposed to be their primary audience. I mean, you, you go to the website, they're flat out state that our audience is, is women 18 to 34. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm really, 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 really hoping that they're just kind of paying attention because we don't need another... Kind of power girl controversy, you know, with the whole the boob window. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what they call it. The boob window. There we go. The big
0: cut out on the and the chest area. I think that Marvel is wisened up because they've already received flack in the comic books for how they've drawn women in anatomically impossible positions to highlight certain features. And they've received a lot of flack over that in the hand drawn stuff. And when it came to their cinematic universe, you've got a Scarlet witch who is traditionally wearing like a one piece bathing suit with a cape. So obviously they didn't do that in the films. Electra is also usually wearing a one piece type bathing suit. They didn't do that in the daredevil series. So, so far, the women I think have been portrayed in costuming that is not always about sexual suggestion as they've been portrayed in the comics in the past. I think they've grown up a little bit with that mentality and rightfully so in in this day and age, it's good to see them moving forward and progressing and and pushing a movement forward. Or
1: I guess if they weren't pushing it forward, at least they're learning from their mistakes. Okay, I can definitely get behind that. And and speaking of Marvel television-related productions, here we are, it's April, almost May, and this is the time of year where traditionally we learn whether or not Shows have been renewed, shows have been canceled, and ABC has yet to reveal whether or not Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is going to get a sixth season. But longtime fans of the show weren't exactly encouraged when they learned that the very last episode of this season is going to be called The End. No, yeah. so <laughs> that's kind of final. Yeah, for me again. If you've been watching the show, you know that Agent Coulson is now supposedly dying because of the deal he made with Ghost Rider back in season four. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm pleased to report that it appears that Clark Gregg is not done giving us more Coulson. And again, I know you you want to advance with notice on the spoilers. Sure. I'm pleased to report that Clark Gregg is will be reprising his role as Agent Coulson in Captain Marvel, which just began shooting in and around L.A. back in March. Hmm. Now the fun part. Marvel Studios has been describing Captain Marvel as, as a period piece, which in this case means that... Carol Danvers' origin story, how she became one of the universe's most powerful beings. Did you follow the story? I mean, Earth gets caught in some sort of galactic war between two species, and this is the inciting event? Is that—have I got that right? I have
0: no idea how that's going to work, because you would think that when Iron Man pops up and he's introduced— to fury and he tells him that there's a bigger world out there you're just not aware of it yet you would think that if there was a intergalactic war that earth was involved with in the 90s stark would remember that like oh hey you're talking about that event from like 10 years ago or whatever so i have no idea how what they've got planned i just know it's set back before current day yeah, was all I knew. Yeah,
1: what they're saying is that this is going to be set in the 1990s, which means that that Clark Gregg is going to be playing a version of Coulson that's significantly younger than the version that we've seen in Marvel's Agents' Shield. And, and look, on a, a previous Marvelous Disney podcast, you and I have actually talked about how Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury is going to be aged down for Captain Marvel, sort mm-hmm. of the way that Michael Douglas was aged down for the opening scenes of Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a surprise that we're going to get a younger Coulson as part of the mix here, but but what was kind of a surprise, though, is that when it comes to these alien species that we were talking about, the intergalactic war, two of these guys are going to be familiar to Guardians of the Galaxy fans, largely because Lee Pace and Dijon Hassan, who played the Kree bad guys, Ronan and Korath, respectively, will be reprising those roles in Captain Marvel. Say what?
0: Yep. I didn't know that Lee Pace was coming back. I had no idea about that.
1: That's surprising. I'm going to have to sit here and ponder on that for a while and think about what the implications of that are. I so enjoyed his work as the big blue guy in Guardians. It will be fun to see him again. Well, no, I'm just wondering because he was dealing with Thanos
0: directly in Guardians. And if he's going to be going back to the 90s, and Captain Marvel, I think, is going to be making her cinematic debut in Avengers Infinity War,
1: isn't she? Mm, They've been fairly tight to the vest about that. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The other controversy that's sort of circling around Infinity Wars is, is that People have been going over the trailers and the commercials with a fine-tooth comb, and to date, nobody's seen any image of Captain Marvel, nor have they seen any image of Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye character. They're hiding something. Yeah, could well
0: be. I'm okay with that. I don't need to know until I get into the theater. So big big blue guys are coming back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep hey, how about Big Green Guys? We haven't talked about Big Green Guys
1: lately. Well, you are correct, but right after we get back from this break, let's talk about those two Hulk movies, okay? Sounds like a plan. Okay.
0: Welcome back to Marvelous Disney. Now, it's been a while since we last talked about the Hulk, and if I remember correctly, Universal Pictures 2003 version of the Hulk, I liked it, but that was a pretty strange superhero movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, for the first 90 minutes of its running time, it's this brooding psychological drama where Bruce Banner has to deal with all these childhood memories he's repressed. And and then, literally, an hour and a half in, the Universal Picture release suddenly becomes the Hulk movie that we've all been waiting for. We get to see the Hulk throw around tanks like they're toys, the Hulk soaring through the air as he jumps... Three miles of territory in a single bound. One of my favorite things out of this whole movie is Hulk snatches a guided missile out of the sky and then bites the warhead off and then spits yeah. it at the helicopter that fired the missile at him and blows that up. That was a pretty awesome Hulk moment. Yeah, and it and it, it ends with what? The Hulk is on the Golden Gate Bridge. He jumps on the back of a jet. He fires into the stratosphere. The guy takes him up to the point where he's, the, the air is thin and he's trying to make the hulk black out and he blacks out and falls back into san francisco bay and it's just like an absolutely killer action scene the very best thing in all of 2003's hulk and to be honest it's just the sort of thing you'd expect from the guy who did all the incredible martial arts scenes in 2000's crouching tiger hidden dragon but here's the thing the rest of 2003's Hulk is really, if you, you, you want to be completely honest about it, a lot like Ahm Lee's earlier art house successes. I mean, movies like 1993's The Wedding Banquet or 94's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and his mainstream movies of the mid-90s, uh, Sense and Sensibility and The Ice Storm. And all of those movies have to deal with tense relations between different generations of the same family. And the executives at Universal Pictures knew that Ang Lee specialized in these sorts of stories. But they still hired him to make their long and development Hulk movie, largely because when Jonathan Heisland was, was supposed to direct the Hulk movie, I think we talked about this in, on the last Marvelous Disney podcast, the earlier version from 97, ILM was warning Universal, it's like, look, we're looking at all this effects work. It's going to be $100 million, and that's before you shoot any live action. Whereas Ang Lee, you know, he was able to deliver... All of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, with all of those amazing martial art scenes, the entire film, total, $17 million. And then when you factor in the four Academy Awards that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon won, what was it, uh, Best Foreign Language Film, Best Art Direction, Cinematography and Score, Look, if you're an executive at Universal, wouldn't you, you know, if you signed this guy to make your superhero movie, wouldn't you be bragging about that? Sure. In fact, that's Galen Heard, the, the producer of the film. Back in January of 2001, she's like, we are really thrilled that Ang's going to be directing our Hulk. He'll bring the character and the drama to the foreground, and in addition to his visual storytelling ability, I can't think of anyone today who's operating at a higher level across the board. and Universal thought they had a prestige picture in their hand, that rarer than rare beast a genre movie that would not only score at the box office, but maybe even do well when award season rolled around. And this is why, part of this this January 2001 Variety article, Gale starts describing Universal soon to being in production of Hulk in a way that would totally confuse anybody who'd actually read the comic books or watched the Hulk TV series. I mean... What was supposedly to differentiate Universal's new Hulk movie from all the previous Hulk projects, this just makes me crazy, this is how Anne describes it. The relationship that has always been neglected in the other versions of the Hulk is the one between the protagonist and his Hulk inner self. Our movie will be an old-fashioned Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story that has characters and depth and psychology and meaning, as well as a lot of new twists. Does that scan it all with what you know of the Hulk, Aaron? Or? A touch? There's
0: always been the sense of he's afraid of turning into a rage monster he can't control, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He's a doctor. He's trying to find his own cure to his problem. I mean, there are shades of that in there. But you also tend to immediately associate huge feats of physical strength Mm -hmm. with any Hulk story. So when you present it like it's a Jekyll and Hyde story by itself it doesn't sound all that appealing And if she would have said it was a Jekyll and Hyde on steroids that will have tanks being thrown across a the desert then you go oh that sounds
1: much more hulkish okay because it just seems to me that the bend on the story Banner supposedly being this emotionally closed off scientist who's repressing memories of when his dad, who's also a brilliant scientist, has monkeyed with Bruce's DNA. Outside of the father monkeying
0: with the DNA part, Mm -hmm. if you take that part out, it's not all that far off from where we are with current day Bruce Banner and Mark Ruffalo. He is repressing his want to be with Natasha because he can't have kids and he's a monster. And so there is some repression going on in this current version of that character so there are some threads that are still there maybe not as much of a spotlight on them but they still weave those into the narrative a a little bit no
1: no no no. i get that but the weird thing is at least for me i feel like ruffalo has earned that with his take on the character and don't get me wrong i mean you know it's look in prepping for the series i watched 2003 hulk and then sought out the ed norton and that you know there's things about these films i really like sure But the origin story for Bruce Banner where he's only three years old and he gets to see his mother being murdered by his father because he accidentally stabs her. It's like, I know the history of comic books are filled with dark turns. I mean, Superman's parents who sacrifice him and throw a baby in a rocket. And so he gets to live as Krypton blows up her. Spider Man with Uncle Ben, but right. this is even by comic book standards, this is cruel and unusual. Yeah. Have you seen Hulk anytime recently? Yeah, I do watch it every once in a
0: while because I don't hate the movie. I think that there's good stuff in it that I enjoy. So, yeah, I, I watch it every couple of years or so.
1: Does the whole comic book multiple screen thing work for you? I mean, as a visual, I actually like it. In the
0: theaters the first time, because we didn't have that many points of comparison, mm-hmm. I found it to be new and exciting and embracing the comic book heritage. Yep. But now that we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe to compare it to, I'm glad that we don't have that in the MCU.
1: Good point. Good point. But I did enjoy it at the time. I love it. It is a visual component. I just worry that it sometimes made the storytelling a little hard to follow. To get back to the actual physical production of the film, Ang um, Lee is telling reporters who were coming on the set to see him as he shooting in the movie that that he views this story as a Greek tragedy and that he's trying to make a delicacy out of American fast food, which mm. I have to tell you, isn't what you want to hear when you're in the corner suite of Black Tower, which is where all of the executive offices for Universal Picture are good. They're seeing all this dark psychological footage come in, and it's like, where's the big green guy fighting with tanks? Yeah. They're starting to get really concerned about the Hulk movie footage that's starting to come in and. What's really not helping the situation is at this exact time while Hulk is being shot and the footage is coming in, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is opening at theaters in May of 2002. And people are just losing their minds over how great this Columbia Pictures thing. They describe it as the perfect comic book movie and it's Spider-Man is loaded with laughs and thrills and how Raimi's done this amazing job of translating this Marvel superhero to the big screen. And meanwhile, the guys at Universal are watching Watching Eric Banner stare into the camera and not do anything. And speaking of Eric Banner, this Australian actor talked about when he was on the set, you know, and it's just looking back on the time. And he said that he described how Ang Lee was almost ridiculously serious. And that he's been on previous movie sets. Again, he's a working actor. And those are noisy, fun places where, as the set of Hulk was often silent and The overall feeling of this, this is the the phrase he used, morbid in a lot of ways. So now it's late winter, early spring of 2003, and Universal is just now starting to get Ang Lee's rough cut of Hulk, and they're looking at it, and. They see how dark and tortured the movie is, and they immediately, I mean, they were thrilled to have him on board a year previously, and now it's like, <laughs> oh man, we need changes. We, we we need lots and lots of changes. I mean, first thing that got cut, Michael Dana, this is, Lee brought in his composer who'd done the, the music for The Ice Storm, and he put together the score. In fact, you can still hear a little hint of it every now and then at Hulk. It's when the movie has that kind of... Middle Eastern sound, and you hear this wailing woman. Universal was like, Yeah, we, we can't do that for the whole movie. So they threw out about 90% of it and wow. then brought in Danny Elfman, uh, the guy who did um, everything. Well,
0: yeah, no, that's the thing. If you look
1: at his comic book bona fides, I mean, he did what? 89's Batman, 97's Men in Black. In fact, he, the year previous, he'd done Spider Man for Columbia yeah. Pictures. And it would be nice to say that. Danny Elfman's work turned this movie around. But when Hulk opened in June of 2003, I mean, first weekend, $62 million worth of tickets sold. Universal's like, yay, okay, it's worth it. Next weekend, business falls off by 70%. Yeah. Studios these days lose their mind if business falls off by 40%. So something like that was just nightmarish. I guess the thing that particularly... Made them crazy was that this movie had cost $137 million to make, and in the States it only sold $132 million worth of tickets. So, but yet again, this is a superhero movie. So, while it's in production, spring of 2002, Avid Arad, who at the time was the chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment, he's already planning to do Hulk 2. In fact, his plan was to have the sequel out in theaters by May of 2005, even during the press for making the rounds for the press for Hulk, the screenwriters actually talk about he's already working on the sequel, which was to have starred the Grey Hulk. Now, Aaron, can you explain about the Grey Hulk? I mean, I've seen the very, very early on, the images you see with this character aren't the traditional Green Hulk, they're the Grey Hulk. Well, What is that about?
0: Yeah, I just think it was based around a faulty printer or they had printing problems where some issues or one page Hulk would look kind of light gray and then the next page he was charcoal black. So they figured, well, we don't have any green characters. We could make them green. So, yeah, they kind of phased him. I think after issue four, they made gray Hulk
1: into green Hulk. Now, over the course of the, the series of the book, wasn't the Gray Hulk actually a character? He was brought back. So I wanted to say in the
0: 90s, maybe it mm-hmm. could have been the 80s somewhere. They did bring back Gray Hulk, and then they ended up having many different colors of Hulk. They had uh, a red Hulk for a while, and then they had an intelligent green Hulk. So over the years, they've played with the Hulk formula and the gray hulk specifically was basically uh well he did start off gray old as new you know one of those type of things where they revisit a classic idea
1: supposedly that from what the screenwriter was saying because initially that i guess the talk of the studio is that they wanted Lee to come back and direct hulk 2 and so the screenwriter was was looking to create a much more complex version of the hulk which would they hoped would lure Lee back to work on the movie. But obviously, given what happened at the box office, no one at Universal wanted Ang Lee to come back and direct the next one. And more to the point, Ang Lee went scurrying back to working on Aldel Drums, which actually turned out to be a smart choice because his very next movie in 2005 is Brokeback Mountain, which took home three Academy Awards, one for Adapted Screenplay, one for Best Score, and one just for Lee, who won that year as Best Director. So, worked out well for him. Meanwhile, back at Universal, they're trying to put a good face on this. And so, after Hulk falls out of theaters, it's time now to sell the DVD version of Hulk. And the very first week that the Hulk is available for purchase on DVD, they sell 3.5 million copies. Which says to Universal, look, there's actual hunger out there for Hulk movies. So maybe we should make our next Hulk movie a home premiere, a direct-to-video. And Marvel just pushes back really hard against that, because they have these character affinity surveys they've done in-house, and they know from their own research that the Hulk is second only to Spidey, when it comes mm-hmm. to Marvel's most popular character. And so Spider Man 2 has come out in the interim and it sold 783 million tickets worldwide when it goes out in theaters in June of 2004. And as far as Marvel's concerned, it just makes no sense to go the home premiere direct to video route with Hulk 2. It's just, this is leaving money on the table that mm-hmm. clearly they could get from the theatrical release. So, they do something extraordinary you know the joke from the producers the first rule of showbiz is never put your own money in the play and the second rule is never put your own money in the play (laughs) right yeah so they turn around and they reacquired the film rights for their own studio marvel studios and interestingly enough it was because of the language they put in the original deal with universal that unless they had their own hulk 2 movie in development within two years time the rights would revert to marvel and so that's what actually happened though what was kind of interesting is that marvel then turns around and says okay look we'll produce the movie but if universal if you want you can distribute this new hulk movie which would be called the incredible hulk and so Universal's like yeah okay i like that you spend the money to make it and we'll distribute it but again given what just happened with the last film it's like look Let's not continue down that road, let's do a reboot, let's do a whole new series of movies with a brand new cast and a more comic book friendly take on the character. And Gail Hurd, God love her, she's still on board, still the producer. She says, we want this new movie to meet the expectations of everyone who's read the comic and seen the Hulk TV series. So forget about the complex psychological thing and bring on the tank throwing. But again, now it's a question of, well, who do you get? Who's going to give us the the Hulk movie we're looking for here? So they wind up hiring Louis Leterrier. This is the guy who directed The Transporter in 2002 and then its sequel in 2005, Transporter or two, but now they want a star. They want some heat because the thing is, Eric Banner, lovely actor, in fact, went on from working on Hulk to doing voices for Finding Nemo. But again, they want a name. And so for a time, they talk with David Duchovny of the X-Files. And interestingly enough, though, Louis Leterrier pushes for Mark Ruffalo. If he'd had his way, Ruffalo would have started playing the big green guy in the 2008 Incredible Hulk rather than waiting till Marvel's Avengers in May of 2012. So with that going on, how does Ed Norton end up with this role? And interestingly enough, when they first went to him, he said no. He didn't want to play the part. But Marvel was like, well, can you at least meet with Lewis? Can you at least sit down with him? And so spring of 2006, Edward, as a, just basically as a courtesy, sits down with Terrier to discuss The Incredible Hulk. And, and at that point, they both have this script that Zach Penn had written for the project. And Leterrier lets Norton, it's like, okay, what do you think of the script? And Edward, who as it turns out is, is a, a screenwriter himself, then talks about how he'd go about improving the script that Zach had written. Lataria was impressed enough with Norton's ideas that he gives the actor slash screenwriter an intriguing proposition. Marvel will not only hire Edward Norton to play Bruce Banner, but will also pay him to rewrite Zack Penn's Incredible Hulk screenplay so that Edward Norton, the actor, and Edward Norton, the writer, can work together to bring their own unique vision of how Bruce Banner and the Hulk should be properly portrayed to life on the screen. It was to borrow a phrase from The Godfather, an offer that Edward Norton couldn't refuse. So he signs on to be part of The Incredible Hulk in April of 2006. And and he takes the screenwriting part of his job very, very seriously. So much so that Edward is still polishing the script for The Hulk, still giving Lewis new pages of dialogue and... That reflect changes that were made over the course of production, midway through principal photography. All that time in front of the camera and then go home at night and write new script pages and that sort of thing. This is a, a lot of work. Yeah. Now, mind you, not everything that Edward writes for The Incredible Hulk ends up in the finished film. He actually wrote a prologue for this movie that was shot on a glacier up in uh, British Columbia. The the sequence shows the now despondent Bruce Banner hiking off into the frozen wilderness, where he then attempts suicide with a pistol, but just as Bruce Banner goes to pull the trigger, he turns into the Hulk, and the Hulk foils Banner's suicide attempt by crushing the pistol in the palm of one hand. The weird thing is, I guess the scene is actually included in the Blu-ray DVD of The Incredible Hulk that you can actually watch this incredibly dark scene, but it got cut prior to theatrical release. So what's kind of weird is that if you remember in Marvel's Avengers, there's that scene aboard the helicarrier where Bruce Banner's talking with Nick Fury and and Tony Stark and Captain America. And he flat out says, it's like, look, I got a low. I didn't see an end. So I put a bullet in my mouth and the other guy spit it out. It's one thing to show someone attempting suicide, especially a hero attempting suicide
0: Mm -hmm. on screen, because that's not very cool. The way that they handled it with Ruffalo is with a line of dialogue that insinuates something that is, I guess, a little bit less damaging to the, the psyche of the character.
1: That's a great insight, though. When Ruffalo says it, as opposed to you watching Ed Norton do it, you have a lot more sympathy for the character. Right. That The fact that he got to this moment or to the point that he makes this sort of admission. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that Ed Norton wrote for The Hulk that didn't wind up in the finished film. And to be honest, a lot of it got cut because both Universal Pictures and Marvel Studios wanted a movie that was much more action-packed and faster-paced than Hulk had been back in June of 2003. And since that Ang Lee movie had been 138 minutes long... They decided going into The Hulk that they wanted The Incredible Hulk to be at least 20 minutes shorter than that movie. So the executives at Marvel and Universal were incredibly pleased when the final cut for Incredible Hulk came in at just 112 minutes at under two hours i mean that makes the guy at the exhibitors happy because that's you know you can get a new show every two hours and everybody's happy except for ed norton (laughs) he's like as early as march of 2008 word is beginning to leak that edward is unhappy at the way this movie is being edited he feels that some of his very best scenes both from an acting as well as a writing point of view are now being cut out of the movie, which renders the character of the Hulk far less sympathetic. But from Universal and Marvel Studios' point of view, given that the 2003 Hulk spends 90 minutes covering this character's origins, nobody wants to spend 40 minutes of screen time going over that same piece of turf again. They always feel like, you know, look, the hard lesson that was learned with Ang Lee's Hulk is don't wait 90 minutes to show the Hulk battling with soldiers. So... You have to put that sort of scene in front of an audience in less than 30 minutes in. And this is why in The Incredible Hulk, that fight in the soda bottling plant, or it's the first time that Tim Roth's Emil Blonsky character gets to see Bruce Banner transform into the big green guy. That happens just 23 minutes in. And again, just with the whole notion of this was that Universal and Marvel are doing absolutely everything they can to deliver a Hulk movie that fans of the comic book and the old Hulk TV series Are expecting, are are looking forward to the the film they want. Right. Which, again, you know, you can't fault them for that. But again, Edward Norton had worked really hard on all of these incredible Hulk pages that he delivered to the set midway through a kind of principle of photography. And Edward felt that given how hard he'd worked as an actor and playing the title role of the film and also as the screenwriter who kept fine-tuning this movie for, for Lewis right up until the middle there, well, he thought that meant that he had a, should have a say in, in its final cut, that he should have been allowed into the editing suite. And, and when he found himself locked out as they were editing the movie, Norton got mad. And the way he decided to retaliate is that he announced that, so it's, it's coming up to time for the, the Hollywood premiere of The Incredible Hulk. And he says, I'm not coming. I won't do the red carpet. He doesn't show, and that makes it incredibly awkward for the promotional team. Right. More to the point, the folks at Marvel never forget that he was a no-show for the premiere. To their way of thinking, his behavior seriously considered to the poor word of mouth that eventually dogged this Universal Picture release, which, after heavily hyped release, then only goes on to sell $134 million worth of tickets in North America, which is actually 2.8 million less than the Hulk sold in this exact same territory back in 2003. And given that the Ang Lee movie cost $137 million to make and the Louis Luterre movie cost $150 million to make, Marvel and Universal Pictures both managed to lose money on the reboot. What happens next, nobody looks great. July yeah. of 2010, Marvel Studios is just now getting started on on pulling the very first Avengers movie together. And so they're announcing the cast. They're announcing, you know, that they, Robert Downey Jr. is coming back to Iron Man and Chris Evans is gonna be, repeats his role as Captain America. And when it comes time to talk about the Hulk and they actually release a press release saying that Edward Norton would not be invited back to play the Hulk in this movie. This is the exact statement that Marvel Studios releases. We have made the decision to not bring Edward Norton back to portray the title role of Bruce Banner in The Avengers. Our decision is definitely not one based on monetary factors, but instead rooted in the need for an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit of our other talented cast members. Given the stories about Ed Norton going home and writing new pages for the script because Louis Leterre wanted to refine the project while they're in production, that's kind of a crappy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, to Edward Norton's way of thinking, given that the way the the Marvel statement was phrased, it made it sound like the studio was passing on Norton because he was asking, now asking for far too much money in order to come back and play the Hulk, which was really not the case at all. What Edward wanted this time around was respect. You know, he wanted something in writing that said if Norton did what he did before, if he made a significant contribution to this Marvel Studio Production screenplay, he would then be allowed to have some say about what happened in the editing bank. But given that was obviously not going to happen, Edwards' management team tried to put best possible face on this unfortunate situation. They released their own statement, insisting that Marvel's explanation of why Norton was not being asked back was, and again, quoting directly from the press release here, a purposefully misleading, inappropriate attempt to paint our client in a negative light. That said, recognizing that were they to opt to prolong this confrontation in the media, It might then have damaged Norton's professional reputation. So they immediately opt then to, to be as gracious as possible. They close out their statement to the press with, whatever the case, it is completely Marvel's prerogative and we accept the decision with no hard feelings. And that, in the end, is how Mark Ruffalo, in uh, December of 2010, some six months after Edward Norton gets disinvited to come back and play (laughs) Dude Bruce Banner, that's how he winds up being the third actor to play the Hulk, a role that Ruffalo has now played in no less than four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. And judging by all those trailers and TV commercials that Aaron has not seen yet, we'll (laughs) be uh, reprising that same role in the next film in this series. And speaking of uh, Avengers Infinity Wars, Aaron and I, I promise will be back shortly with a podcast that discusses this Marvel Cinematic Universe movie in depth. But for now, thanks for listening to this super long edition of Marvelous Disney. For Aaron Adams, I'm Jim Hill, and good night.